Well, brothers and sisters, if you remember last week, we were in the first 12 verses of uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. And we saw, didn't we, that um, the believers that Peter was writing to, who were going through various trials, were being called by God to go from immaturity to maturity. And we saw that God, through Peter, was calling them and us to do two things in our life to promote that growth. We were to put off the old man and put on the new. And we were to go to Jesus on a continuous, active basis. And we saw, didn't we, that if we did that, there would be two fruits. The church would grow in holiness and as a dwelling place of the spirit. And we would offer up these spiritual sacrifices that would be acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, over the next two weeks, what we're going to see the Spirit do through Peter as we finish chapter 2 and as we go through the first 14 verses of chapter 3, is we're going to see God take, take a certain aspect of that fruit and unpack it for us. And that certain aspect of fruit is in verses 11 and 12, where we saw last week, didn't we, that as believers, we are called to live an honourable life among the Gentiles. We're called to live a life of honesty, of truth, of holiness around unbelievers with the end result that they, in observing our behaviour, may glorify God with us in the day of his visitation, i.e. that they may get saved, that when Jesus comes back, they will glorify him with us. This is what Peter is going to unpack for us over the next two weeks. He's going to be showing us what it is to live this honourable life. In other words, what Peter is going to show us is what it is to live a practical, evangelical life as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, this would have been very relevant to these believers because they didn't have the scripture the way that we have it. And they were living in a very hostile environment. They were being persecuted. And they would have lapped up any advice that God would give them to interact with the society. But it's also very relevant to us. Because, brothers and sisters, there are many Christians in the church who are confused about what it is to live an evangelical life. That's because of extremes of views with regard to evangelism. In certain areas of the church, you have those who teach that when you're witnessing to people, all you need to do is love them and just be nice to them. Just ride on the waves of grace and mercy. Forgive me for my impression of dancing there. But that form of evangelism is unacceptable because it doesn't deal with sin and repentance. But then there are other areas of the church that teach that when you witness to people, you need to be harsh to them. You need to point out their sin. You need to call them to a holy life, forgetting the fact that they don't know how to live holy because they're not saved. And of course, that form of evangelism is unacceptable as well because it doesn't deal with the love and grace of God. So hopefully, as we go through the next two weeks, we're going to see what it is to live a balanced, evangelical life in the world. So what does Peter say? In verse 13, he starts off by saying, Therefore submit. 
What he's basically saying is, look, given the fact that you're called to maturity, you're called to live a honourable life, you're called to offer up these spiritual sacrifices, this is what I want you to do. I want you to submit. He's using similar language there to the language he used in chapter 1, when, remember, he was talking about the temptation they had to go back to their old life, and he said he wanted them to be obedient children, That was a headline command here. This is the headline command for the next two weeks. It is to submit. Now that word submit in the Greek is a word that means to put yourself under somebody else's authority. It's a word that occurs 49 times in the New Testament. And the way it's written here is to emphasize the fact that it's not something we can produce in and of ourselves. It's something that God has to do in our lives. It's written in a way here to to show that it's a command, it's not optional. You can't opt out of submitting. And also the way Peter writes this here, he's saying, you should have received this yesterday. So he's placing an importance on pursuing this command to submit. Now for us to understand this command to submit better, we have to understand some basic facts about the Trinity and about the Gospel. When you survey the Scriptures, you see very clearly that God is one God. But within that oneness, there are three persons. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And those three persons, they have an equality in their nature and in their attributes. And because of that, at some point in eternity past, they would have known that in creating man man would fall. They would have known that in man falling, redemption would have been required. They would have known that in redemption being required, a perfect sacrifice would have been required. And they would have known that because a perfect sacrifice was required, it would have to be one of them that was sacrificed, because God is the only one that's perfect. We know from Philippians 2 that when this decision needed to be made, Jesus did not consider the glory that he had or the blessedness that he had in heaven as something to be grasped. And he chose to submit himself under the Father's will to bring forth the gospel and redemption history and he came to the earth as a man and he went to the cross and died for the sins of the earth. Now, in that, Jesus shows us that when he relates to the Trinity, when he relates to the world in the Gospel, he shows submission. This is confirmed to us in John chapter 6, 38, when Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, showing that Jesus in his life submitted to the Father. Now, When Peter gives this command to submit, he's thinking about this submission of Christ. Because, of course, that would have been the only submission that he would have known. And he's wanting them, brothers and sisters, to aim for the submission of Christ, to target that, to shoot for that. Because, of course, the submission of Christ is the perfect example to follow. Because Jesus was perfect. But it's also, more importantly, because Peter knew the fruit that comes from the submission of Christ. 
And when you look at Jesus' life, there's a certain situation that shows the fruit of the submission of Christ in a very poignant way. And that's when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was there, wasn't he? And it says in the Gospel accounts that he had sorrow in his soul to the point of death. Jesus was suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane because he was just about to have the sins of the world placed upon him. Jesus suffered so much in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says in the Gospels that he sweated blood, which is an actual medical phenomenon that has occurred. And Jesus suffered so much in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to his father, Father, if there's any other way for this race to be saved, but at that point he said, but not my will, but your will be done. And that happened three times. And then what happened? He was arrested. He went to the cross. He died for, for my sin, for your sin, for the sins of the whole world. And then he rose again on the third day. So what we see in that example, brothers and sisters, is in a very real way, the fruit of the submission of Christ is the cross. Him going to the cross to die for our sins and then on the third day, rising again. And this is the fruit of every example of the submission of Christ. It always leads to one place and that's his cross, where he died and he rose again. And this is why Peter wants them to live out the submission of Christ. Because he knows that if they do this, it will lead to a presentation of the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. People will see Jesus dying on the cross. They will see him rising again from the dead through that submission. This is why he's calling them to this. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, we don't just see the fruit of Jesus' submission. We see the how we are supposed to follow it. If you remember Jesus, what did he say? He said, not my will, Father, but your will be done. And what is that? That is the denial of self. What Peter was calling these believers to do in the midst of their suffering was to deny their self what they wanted to do and put themselves under the will of their father. And they were called to do that by asking the spirit to produce this life of self-denial so that they would live in what Jesus said in the Gospels when he said, you are to deny yourselves daily, pick up your cross and follow me. And this is the same for us, brothers and sisters. This call of submitting is the same for us today because it produces the same fruit. And we're only going to live in it if we choose to deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow Christ. The way that looks in our life on a practical basis on a day-to-day is as you go around and your old man, as we spoke about last week, as he tries to get you, to follow the will of your sinful nature, you say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to deny that. And I'm going to ask the Spirit to help me to have the faith to walk in the new man who's been created in righteousness and holiness and live in the will of my Father. That's what we're called to do. Now, this is very countercultural. Is countercultural to our society, and it's even, I would say, very unfortunately, countercultural to our church life. Because unfortunately, 
in the last 50 years, I would say, there's a heresy that's come into the church that says that Christianity is just about you. It's just about you and your happiness and you having a great life. And that's an absolute lie. It's rubbish. Christianity is not just about you, it's about Jesus. It involves you, but it isn't just about you. Maybe some of you in here have been influenced by this teaching, and maybe you're even thinking now, Adam, I don't want you to preach this. Don't preach to me that I need to deny myself. It's too hard. But brothers and sisters, we can't escape this. If you want to be an evangelical Christian in the 21st century, you've got to start denying yourself, picking up your cross and following Christ. There's no other way. Do you want to be an evangelical Christian? Where it starts here, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and live in the submission of Christ. Amen? So, as we go through the rest of our text today, what we're going to see is Peter bring up two types of people that God wants us to submit to in our life as believers. In verses 13 to 17, he's going to talk about submission to royalty and civil government. And then in verses 18 to 25, he's going to talk about submission to our workmasters or our work bosses. So let's deal with royalty and civil government. Everyone starts to groan when I say that. So he says, in verse 13, after saying, therefore submit, he says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to the governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Now, what Peter has in mind in these, in these two verses here is he's wanting to tell these believers that, he, that they should submit to the rulership of the Roman Empire, to Caesar as King Supreme, and at that time it was Nero, and also to these governors that were people who were sent to the different regions of the Roman Empire to institute law, to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. This is what he's calling them to do. But notice it says in verse 13 that the reason we should submit to these people is because it's for the Lord's sake. It's for the Lord's sake. Now for us to understand what that means and to understand why Peter is calling these guys who are suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire to submit to them, we must turn to Romans 13 verses 1 to 5. And that should come up on the screen there, hopefully. Is that up there? And I'm just going to read those verses. It says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. 
Now what Paul is basically saying in these verses is he's saying that every royal authority and every civil government is appointed by God for certain purposes. And those purposes are to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And because of that, they are called his ministers. They're they're God's ministers. And if we choose to resist that authority, we will bring judgment on ourselves. There's a reality here, brothers and sisters. If we say we are believers and we acknowledge that God is the final authority, we should really submit to the institutions that he has laid out on earth. And as we do that, as we submit both verbally and non-verbally, we acknowledge his authority and the right that he has to put them in place. And we also even acknowledge the existence of God. And this is why it's for his sake. It's because in submitting to these people, we acknowledge God. We acknowledge him as the first, as the final authority as the one who actually lays these institutions out on earth. But it's interesting because it says in Romans 13 that in these authorities being appointed, they are an ordinance of God. But then in our text today, it says it's an ordinance of man. So what does that mean? Well, it means that when you see a royal authority or a civil government set up by man, even though that's the case, it's not escaped the sovereignty of God's counsel. And that should be a great encouragement to us because it means that whatever royal authority or whatever government is in place, they're there for a purpose, whether they are good or bad. Because I know that some of you in here might struggle with this doctrine to submit to government and royalty. Because you might think, well, you know, Adam, that's all well and good, but I know some royalty and I know some governments that do evil and have done some atrocities over the last 2,000 years. And I would, if you're thinking that, I would say, yes, I agree. A good example would be Adolf Hitler in the 20th century. But even though that's the case, that does not mean that God hasn't got a purpose in appointing that person, and it doesn't mean that we should not endeavor to submit to them. Because God is going to do something through that person. A good example of this in the Old Testament is Pharaoh. Do you remember Pharaoh? When God said to Moses, to Pharaoh, let my people go, he said no. And he made the slave labor of the Israelites worse. He was a bad man. He made their life a misery. But God still used that. He used that to show himself to Pharaoh and the Egyptians that he had a greater authority than them that they may come out with Israel and get saved. And he also delivered his people through that. And that's what God still does today. When God allows a bad government or a bad royalty to exist, it may be because he wants to reveal himself to that royalty or that government. He may want to reveal himself to the people of that nation and deliver his people in that nation. Maybe that's what God is doing in the UK. We all grieve about the fact that the governments are getting more and more evil from a moral perspective. But don't underestimate the fact that God is doing something through that. He is going to reveal himself to the British people. 
and he's going to deliver us from laziness, from error, and from, from slumber. Lord, let that be the case. But even if that's not happening, brothers and sisters, if, if there's a good government in place or a bad government in place, God is in control. Some of you might be thinking, well, is there a limit to our submission? If there's a bad government in place, does it mean that we have to submit to them, whatever? And I would say, no, there is a limit. And that limit is, is if that royal authority or that government begin to tell you to do something that's contrary to the word of God. There's a a good example of that in Acts chapter 4. You remember in Acts chapter 4 when the apostle Peter and John went to the uh, Jewish religious leaders and the high priest and they said to them, you must stop preaching about Christ. And they said, no, we can't stop. How can we stop preaching what we've heard and we've seen? And that's an example of an authority trying to tell them to not do something that God's told them to do in his word. And that is an example where you don't have to submit to a bad government or bad royalty when they're telling you to do something contrary to the word of God. A good example of that in my line of work would be if the bosses above me began to tell me to start signing abortion forms and say, you've got to do this. If that was the case, I would have to say no. I can't submit to that. Because I believe in the sanctity of life. I believe that's what God's word teaches. And so if I submitted to that, I would be doing something contrary to the word of God. But brothers and sisters, if the authorities above us are not telling us to do that, if they're not telling us to do something directly against God's word, we should submit to them. Whether it's Labour, the Conservatives, the Liberal Democrats, should I hasten to say UKIP, whether it's Charles, whether it's William, whoever it is, we need to submit to them. And that's because of what it says in verse 15. He says in verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now this verse excites me. It excites me because of what it means. What it means is that as we choose to do what's good, as we choose to submit to the royal authority above us and civil government, we will put to silence, literally, we will muzzle, like that, the unbelief of men. Do you get what I'm saying, brothers and sisters? What I'm saying is this, is that as you choose to submit to the authority above you, unbelief will stop winning. And belief will start winning in our country. What an amazing thing. Why is that? Well, it's because submission to authority is contrary to the sinful nature. When unbelievers watch you submitting to royalty and civil government, it will get them asking questions in their heart. They will say, why does that guy not evade tax? Why does that guy always stick to the speed limit? Why does that guy always pay his parking ticket when he's only going to be in that car park for five minutes. Why does he do that? And conversations will start. They will ask you, hey, why do you do this? And you can say, well, it's because God tells me to. 
He's the ultimate authority. He's put these governments in place. And what will that lead to? It will lead to a presentation of the gospel. It will lead to a presentation of the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. That is why we are called to submit to royal authority and civil government. He goes on in verses 16 and 17 to talk about two attitudes that we need to have when we are submitting to this authority. He says in verse 16, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. And what he does at the beginning of verse 16 is he presents to us a fruit of having a government and having royalty, and that is our freedom. Do you know that, brothers and sisters, that the freedom that you have to go to the supermarket, to go to the pub, to go to the park, to go to work, is indirectly because we have a government and because we have a royal authority. We should be thankful for that. But he says in this verse that even though we have this freedom because of these authorities, we should see ourselves as bond servants of God or slaves to God. And the reason why we have to do that is so that we don't use our freedom as a cloak for sin. So that we don't use the freedom that we have to go to the supermarket to commit gluttony. We don't use the freedom we have to go to the pub to commit drunkenness. Or we don't use the freedom we have to go on the internet to look at things we shouldn't do. Because brothers and sisters, if unbelievers see us submitting to the authority but then sinning, they will see hypocrisy there. And they will go, I don't want to follow the God that that person follows. This is why we need this attitude. It keeps our witness with integrity. He then says in verse 17, Honour all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the king. I don't know about you, but when you look at that verse, it seems quite bunched up. There's a lot going on in there. But that's because he wants to illustrate the fact that in our life, there are lots of people around us. There are unbelievers, there are believers. We have our relationship with God and we have the authorities above us. There's lots of people in our life. And he wants us to have the right attitude to each one. He wants us to see unbelievers as being uh, equal because they're made in the image of God. He wants us to love our brothers and sisters. He wants us to prefer them. He wants us to fear God, to revere God, and he wants us to obviously honour the king. And that's because, brothers and sisters, again, if unbelievers see that we are endeavouring to submit, but we have the wrong attitude to these people, they will see hypocrisy. And they'll say, there's something wrong about that. I'm not going to follow that God. This is why he's giving these two attitudes in verses 16 and 17. I think it's obvious, brothers and sisters, from this little section that it's very important to God that we submit to government and to any royal authority above us because it ultimately leads to an opportunity for the gospel. It leads to you being able to tell people about Jesus. I'm not saying you can't talk about politics. I'm not saying you can't even criticise bad governments or bad royalty, but what I am saying is that we need to have our mind renewed in this area so that we don't first complain about authority, but we submit to it. That we don't first 
grumble about authority, but we first endeavor to submit. Let's do this. So he goes on in verse 18 to begin to introduce to us the second type of person that we're called to submit to in our lives as believers. And they are our workmasters or our work bosses. He says in verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. And so what he's doing there in verse 18 is he's introducing to us a relationship that was very common in the first century. And that relationship was between masters and slaves. And make no mistake about it, in the first century, slavery was a very common thing. When I was preparing for this message, I was quite shocked to realize that in the first century, possibly up to half the population of the Roman Empire was involved in slavery. There's a big, big number of masters, there's a big, big number of slaves. It was a very important part of society and a very important part of the economy. It was not like slavery that we think of. The slavery in the first century was not like the slavery in the 17th to the 19th century that was fueled by racism. It wasn't like that. It wasn't fueled by racism. In fact, it was actually very much like the way that we relate to our work bosses when we go to work. But the fact that there was a large number of them means that when Peter wrote this letter, he would have been writing to believers who were slaves. And because there was such a large number of slaves at that time in the first century, they had a very important role in evangelism. This is confirmed to us in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where Paul said, Exhort bondservants, or slaves, to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. And what these verses confirm, brothers and sisters, is that slaves in the first century had the opportunity to adorn or make beautiful the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they did that by the way that they worked, that they were obedient to their masters, that they did their job very well, that they didn't argue They didn't go to work for self-serving purposes, but they showed good faith. And in doing that, they were vital tools for evangelism in the first century, particularly with their unsaved masters. Now, what we're going to see in this section, from from verses 18 to 25, is Peter's going to take a, a specific situation that slaves may have found themselves in, and show how they could be evangelically very useful. He says, in verse 18, he says that he wants them to be submissive to their masters with all fear, which means with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, which is the boss that's really nice, but also to the harsh. And the word for harsh there means to be froward. It means to be contrary to the truth. And what Peter's bringing out here is this reality of you being a servant, you've done all your work that your master called you to do, and then you go to your master and he says, you haven't done what I told you to do. And that master would be contrary to the truth, 
he would be harsh. And this is the situation that Peter is wanting to focus on, the reality of a slave having a harsh master. And he says in verse 19 that if you're in that situation as a slave and you choose, because of your conscience towards God, to submit to that harsh master and you suffer wrongfully and you have grief, that is commendable to God or that's praiseworthy in God's eyes. And he tells us in verse 20 why it's praiseworthy because he says, for what credit, is it, what credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And the idea behind this verse is Peter saying, look, if you go to work and you do something wrong, you should be punished for it. But if you go to work and you do nothing wrong, but you suffer, that is commendable because, listen, you are suffering as an innocent person. And God looks very favourably upon those who suffer in innocence. This is confirmed to us in Matthew chapter 5. Verses 10 to 12. When Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And what Jesus is saying is, he's saying that those who are in his kingdom, who suffer in innocence because of him will be rewarded that they should rejoice and be glad emphasizing the fact that God looks very favorably upon those who suffer in innocence and that's why this scenario is commendable to God he goes on in verses 21 to 23 to give further reasons why a slave should endure in suffering unjustly he says For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now the idea behind these verses is that Peter's wanting them to think about when Jesus suffered unjustly at the hands of his workmasters. Because remember, when Jesus was on earth, he was a priest, wasn't he? He was a rabbi. And in a very real way, his workmaster was the chief priest. And just before Jesus went to the cross, he had to go before the chief priest and the Jewish religious leaders to give an account of himself. And what happened? He was accused of doing things that he hadn't done. He was beaten up and he was spat upon. That's in the Gospels. But what did he do? He didn't revile when he was reviled. He didn't threaten when he suffered. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. And that's why this example of him doing this is exemplified in verse 22 when he says, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And the purpose of these verses, brothers and sisters, is Peter saying to these slaves who have harsh masters, he's saying, look, given the fact that you're a child of God and that you're a follower of Jesus, you should expect to go through the same thing that Jesus went through. Jesus suffered harshly 
because of his workmasters, you should expect to suffer harshly because of your workmasters. And if you do, then you should follow in his steps. You shouldn't revile when you're reviled. You shouldn't threaten when you suffer. But you should commit yourself and the person that's persecuting you to God, who is the only righteous judge. Heavy stuff. And we've got to understand that when these slaves would have been reading this, they would have been struggling with it. Because many of them would have been persecuted because they'd just become Christians. They had the new master. That master was Jesus Christ. And their work master wouldn't have been happy about this. And so he would have said, right, I'm going to persecute this guy. I'm going to be harsh to him because he's got this new master called Jesus that he seems to be following all the time. He's supposed to be following me. I'm going to be harsh to him. And these slaves would have been thinking, well, you know, Peter, it's all well and good you saying that it's going to be commendable for us if we go through this. But how on earth are we supposed to not revile when we're, when we're reviled? How on earth are we supposed to not threaten when we suffer? And the answer for that is in verse 24, where Peter says of Jesus, who himself brought our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And the point behind this verse is Peter saying, look, when Jesus died for you on the cross, when he took your sins upon himself, when he experienced the beatings or the stripes that he went through, you were healed, listen, from the dominance of your sinful nature so that you can live for righteousness. That is the key to not reviling when you're reviled. That is the key to not threatening when you suffer. You need to look at Jesus on the cross, having the stripes he had, knowing that you were healed from the dominance of your sinful nature, so that you can live in righteousness. That's the key, and this is what he was calling them to. Now, he's making a big deal about this, because Peter knows... That if these slaves, if they submit to their harsh masters when they're suffering unjustly and they don't threaten and they don't revile, he knows that it will lead to an opportunity for the gospel. What have we learned in this sermon? If there's anything that I want you to go home with, I want you to go home with this. That if you choose to live in the submission of Christ, it will lead to an opportunity for the gospel. Please remember that. That's why submission is so important in our lives. And Peter's saying, look, if you, if you submit in this way, your masters will ask questions. They'll say, why is this servant being so patient? Why is he not biting back? Why is he not arguing with me? And he'll say, the, the servant will say, well, master, it's because of Jesus. It's because of what he's done on the cross for me. This is what he wants to achieve in their lives. Now, this is very relevant for us. It's very relevant for us because, as I said earlier, the relationship between master and slave in the first century is very much like the relationship between us and our work bosses now. 
And so all of the truths that Peter's talked about here in this section can be applied to us at work when we are dealing with our bosses. And there's a very real reality here that if we have a harsh boss at work who is always having a go at us and we choose to submit to them and follow the example of Christ by looking at the stripes when he was on the cross, it will lead to an opportunity for the gospel. That is what God wants to achieve in our lives at work. Do you know that God wants to use you as an evangelical tool at work? That your purpose at work is not just to earn money, which is a good thing, but it is also that those who you work with, particularly your bosses, will see Jesus Christ. That they will see in you that their sins were dealt with at the cross. That in the resurrection of Christ, Jesus defeated their sins so that they may have the chance to be saved. Now, I'm not saying this is easy. I know that many of you in here might have circumstances at the moment where you're struggling with someone at work. It is difficult. It's not fun. But let me ask you a question. Is God happy when you have a moral victory over your boss at work? No, he's not. What God is happy about in the Gospels is when one sinner repents. And that's why he wants you to submit to that harsh boss. Because he wants to have happiness over that boss repenting. And he wants you to be part of that. So do you want to be part of that, brothers and sisters? I certainly do. I had an example this week where I failed miserably at this. I had, um, <clears throat> it wasn't one of my bosses, but it was a patient. Sometimes patients can feel like bosses. <laughs> but <clears throat> this patient was being particularly difficult, and me being my direct self, flew back at them. <laughs> and I tried to justify myself over the next few days, but actually as I was studying the scripture, I was thinking, Lord, I blew it there. I really blew it. I, I'm sorry about that. You wanted me to submit in that situation. You wanted me to develop a relationship with that patient so that I might tell them about Christ. I'm sure many of you can think of examples yourself as well. Now, in finishing, I just want to look at verse 25. Peter says, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And this is really interesting because what Peter's doing here is he's really, in many ways, getting to the crux of the matter about submission. And he's basically saying, look, you know, the only reason you have the possibility to do this, the only reason you've got the possibility to submit in the first place is because you have a relationship with Christ. You've Return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus himself said in John 15:5, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. But listen, for without me, you can do nothing. Without Christ in us, we cannot submit. And maybe some of you in here today are thinking, 
I'm really not living in submission. I'm not living in submission to civil government. I'm not living in submission to my work bosses. May I make a suggestion to you that it may be because you're not abiding in Christ. If you abide in Christ, you will submit. Because Jesus makes it clear that without him abiding there, you cannot do anything. And I want to address those in here who don't know Jesus. It says in verse 25 that when we're not believers, we are like sheep going astray. We are walking around in life aimlessly, not going anywhere, with no hope in sight. And what God calls you to today, if you're in that place, is to come back to him. To come back to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And it's easy. You just acknowledge that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and you'll be saved. And you will be able to submit in this way. We've seen today, brothers and sisters, that submission is a really important part of us being believers. This is a subject that isn't really taught about that much in the church. But I'd encourage you today to pursue the submission of Christ because if you do, you will be an evangelical Christian. And we start that by submitting to government and our work bosses.